Mana 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 this is Social Discasting. Welcome to Social Discasting, a podcast where my guests and I discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves. I am Brandon, aka Brandon. Hope you're well. My guest is a Virginia-based educator who has lived, worked, and thrived in far more places around the world than just simply Virginia. Please welcome Yokohama Bunny. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Hi, Absolutely. how are you? <sighs> thank you for having me. Well, I almost said thank you for having me. <laughs> Dear God, I need to sleep more. Thank you for being on. Sure, no problem. I'm very honored. Thank you for asking me to come on. Absolutely. How are you? Doing well is the answer. Doing, doing? well. I'm doing well. Yeah. Um, I I find uh, I found out very early as as a teacher that the answer is always I'm doing well. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, you're always positive and you're looking forward to this and um, as everything's very proactive. So. It's a perfect, I think, um, profession for me because I, I, I'm always, you know, very gregarious and kind of an ambivert. I'm very extroverted, but then I kind of sit back and uh, enjoy my alone time. So the answer is always I am well. Or if you're asking me another language, yeah, <laughs> that would be different. That is a, a great transition into. Oh, I led you. You, I you teach <laughs> language, don't you? I do. I teach. What do you uh, teach? Well, I've taught. Um, I've taught. I, right now, I teach uh, German. But I've taught uh, language arts and I've taught uh, Japanese, um, but not in a formal setting. I've never taught Japanese in a formal setting. It's more like um, helping my tutor my friends or someone that needed help. Um, and then I was a, a I worked as a docent uh, at school in in Germany, which is kind of just like a TA. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are all my educator uh, jobs. Those are not all my jobs, but. As an educator, that's what I've been. Did you like major in linguistics, or is it that you just have a natural fascination and/or facility for language? Yeah, I don't know. I think everybody has facility and talent, and um, although we might have unique instinctual abilities, mm-hmm. it's very, very, very much about what you find an um, an access point to, and where you latch onto something that interests you, and you will always be stellar in that area that you're interested in, simply because you like to spend the time on it. So um, my parents were very, um, my mom would always try to learn a little bit of each language. So any chance she get, she would get, um, she would use a different language with us. And so um, she, when I was growing up, she was working in a candy shop in a small town upstate New York. So, um, so, but she would still, there would be tourists that would come in. And so she'd want to be able to speak a little bit in every language. And she had grown up the child of a, um, a DC worker who worked at the white house, um, as a, gar- a head gardener actually. Oh, so, wow. so they had neighbors, like the weirdest, craziest, like most important names in world war two history. Like they lived right around where my mom grew up. So she knew a lot of kids like at the embassies and stuff. And so she would learn a little bit. Um, and I think her singing to me in different languages or reading to me, I remember I got a series of Italian uh, comic books when I was like six and I couldn't read it. I couldn't read it, but I could, it was like Disney, but in Italian, it was called Topo, I think, Topo something. I have, I have these very vivid memories of like tra- trying to translate this Italian. That's so um, interesting. So I did really, it was an open door. It was like, it was a door to other other places so i tried to learn every a little bit of every language that i that i would come encounter with so it was just like it was not just like but it was like a a very worldly home and environment oh yeah my mom's a socialist my mom is um she's 
born and raised in Virginia, actually, which is mm -hmm. weird. But my dad, uh, my grandfather, um, he was part of. Uh, he worked as a a forester with the New Deal um, for Roosevelt. So he was up in New Hampshire, and he was originally uh, from the White Mountains up in New Hampshire and up in French Canada. Um, but they were very pro-union. Um, my dad was more of a. My dad was raised in a, a very conservative household, and they met in D.C. My dad was a lieutenant in the Navy. <laughs> he was an engineer. Wow. Yeah. And, um, but he, he mellowed over time. He was kind of a New Yorker. And, and I remember one story that my mom recently told me that had a huge impact on how I viewed my mother. For a long, the longest time, I thought my mom was the enemy, you know. But um, she had broken contact with my dad's side of the family because they had um, said some pretty, pretty cruel stuff about the company she kept um, in, in the, in DC. And uh, my parent, my, my mom especially made the conscious effort that I wouldn't be around these people, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and that was really strongly, she was very open about things like uh, racism and she called it out growing up and she outed herself. She said, she said, I am probably what you would call a racist. I remember her saying that if I had to say it, I would probably say, I, because I was raised in the South, you know, um, she's like, it's unavoidable. And she's telling this to a little child. I remember that conversation. So yeah. I grew up in a very forward thinking um, environment with my mom, gratefully. She never, you know, she worked for the Pentagon for a while, but then they moved upstate. And so it was a very kind of bucolic upbringing in the Finger Lakes, very kind of green and doing outsourced stuff and, and things like that. So, <laughs> so how uh, I learned the languages? Yeah. Oh no, no. I mean, there you. That's asked and answered. I mean, it makes absolute sense. You know, that's it's a thing that you've been a part of your life in some form or another, just yeah. since you can remember. Well, it so. is very sad too because the areas, um, uh, you know, Geneva and Seneca and Skinny Atlas, the Finger Lakes, where I grew up, um, you know, until I was early high school, it's very mired in a time that it was in the 1880s where it was a utopian environment. The first kind of utopia was built in like Skinny Atlas Falls and Marcellus of a kind of a, a society of, of, you know, free lovers that they mm -hmm. celebrated free love. And this is in the 1880s, free love. It's wild. And that was the birthplace of, you know, this kind of white feminism, you know, very deeply kind of white women feminism still was the birthplace of that. So they kind of, were very forward thinking and very open um, in the 1800s. And then it just, things stopped growing. So now um, when you go up there, you see a lot of, uh, you know, kind of alt-right, uh, very conservative lawmakers and mm. um, and things <clears throat> that go viral. I th see things now from, from my town that go viral on Twitter, stuff that's um, are very racist incidences. And it's kind of never grown and retreated into this American state that we live in now. That's, I mean, that, yeah, that's a lot to process. I know, you know, <laughs> being in Arkansas, no, being in Arkansas though, the things that go, don't, that go viral are, are rarely if ever positive. Yeah. And so I can, and I can absolutely relate, especially unfortunately that it's on a state level, you know, let alone, you know, locally. Yeah. But you said though, previous to us recording that you had two years in high school in New York or mm -hmm. upstate New York. Yeah. And then two in Europe. Yeah. So Please explain. I, <laughs> yeah. So now we get to timelines. <laughs> so um, growing up, we were encouraged to take advantage of exchange programs to study abroad. So we had exchange students in our house. Um, bear in mind that we grew up in a very 
rich resort town, but mm -hmm. we were like on the opposite sides of the track. Like we lived on government cheese. My dad, he was uh, made redundant. You know, he was like the last person at his company. Like he went from a efficiency expert to an engineer to finally like the night watchman of an empty warehouse to finally like when I think I was like nine when he didn't have a job anymore. So there was a huge um, economic disruption in, in a family that was probably lower middle class, you know, but able to pay the mortgage to a family that was hugely jeopardized by, um, you know, financial ruin. And at the same time, there was a gas leak that settled under the house that they had purchased. So the house was immediate, immediately made worthless. So they had no capital, oh. no job. So that's why my mom ended up, you know, working most of my life as a, a clerk in a candy store. And that's how we survived. But we were on, you know, um, federal aid, government cheese. Yeah, I mm -hmm. got shoes from, and my clothes from the grocery store. You know how they have that section of clothing at the grocery yeah. store where it's like 99 cents for, you know, two t-shirts and some underwear or something. So I was really, uh, yeah. And I remember going to places, um, you know, like the Salvation Army. That's where I got my school clothes and stuff. So I never really felt that way. I never felt insecure though, because I had such a great, set of parents and you know my dad went back to graduate school and for the eight years um it was we were very financially insecure but my parents still made sure that each of us considered the option of doing an exchange program and that was like almost a non-starter so m my brother went to india for a year Wow. Um, and then my other brother, he didn't pass the selection process. I don't know if his heart was in it either. Um, I think he had wanted to go to New Zealand, but um, he didn't pass the screening. And he was fine, I think, staying at home. He's mm -hmm. a kind of workhorse mentality, works very hard. Um, but then uh, I tried out for it and, uh, it just looked like a rotary program and I didn't get it. I was in 10th grade and I didn't get it because I cried in the interview <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then uh, the second year I came in, like I made it, I remember being so determined. That was the only thing I was focused on. You know, when I was a sophomore, I was like, I'm going to get it next year and I'm yeah. going to go. And I did. And I said, I want to go to Iceland. And they said, uh, <laughs> my mom was, my mom said, you have first choice. So out of like the 200 students they chose from this little district, they were like, you can choose, but uh, here's a list of countries, but you, you took a year of German and I had taken like French, Latin, German and Spanish in high school and wow. up yeah. like in the 10th grade. Um, those were the, all the languages they offered in my high school. So I took them all. And, um, and they said, well, you have a year of German and Germany requires that. So we're sending you to Germany. And so that's when I went to school in Germany and I lived with a very wealthy family and I saw how the other half lives very plainly. Yeah. Um, and they were a great family, quite politically um, connected very politically connected might i say the children of a chancellor connected wow yeah so um and i and they were very fair people very um very the parties in germany and how they interact uh, kind of opened my eyes because there are so many socialist aspects of germany and europe and they still have um very conservative lawmakers who do agree that these kind of things like um you know health insurance natural uh, health insurance for all that that's a requirement that's a you know a human right um 
or free education is also a human right. You don't have to pay for college, which is why I went to college in Germany as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I went for two years to uh, a school, a state school in New York City. And then um, I finished up in uh, Germany, in a very great university in Germany. So so a uh, year and a half in high school and then another th- three years in college, I think, in Germany. My total university education, I think, ends up at about six years. So that's about four years in Germany and two years in the United States. But I left the United States from my undergraduate because, uh, yeah, the, that's my first encounter with a shooting where someone oh, sh- yeah, oh. shot up our, our dorm room. Oh my god! Yeah, they were trying to get um one of the one of my roommates out, and so they there's a huge drive-by shooting, and um, then the second time I was involved in a shooting was a drive-by shooting. I was walking home, and this guy shot at us, and he shot my boyfriend in the arm, and uh-huh. um, yeah, I've been in four, and they've really each time I've left the United States as you know just getting settled, and I'm finding my my little niche in Queens. I've moved back from grad school. I moved to to uh, New York. Um, I, I'm supposed to move with it. I was supposed to move in with one friend, um, bliss, my, a close friend from college. And we had been roommates when we were divided by the first shooting mm-hmm. and she had gone on to Ghana and become, um, an African studies major. And, and my plan was to come back from Europe and we were going to room together and like we had planned it. And then I couldn't find her. Like this was the time before cell phones, you know, like I didn't know her number. I didn't know what happened to her. And it really never occurred to me to kind of dig. So I just went with another roommate. I'm like, Hey, you know, my friend, she, so we lived together in New York and I worked at a large German corporation, a large German bank, maybe <laughs> that I can say. And, uh, and then, um, there was another shooting and I was with my roommate at a diner and someone, no, it wasn't a diner. It was a pool hall. Yeah. We were in the back playing pool and um, there was a drive by a park and, and fire. So someone shot up the front hitting a couple of guys in front of us and everybody ran out the back door and we crawled up to the front and, um, and that was enough to say, maybe I should probably go. I should probably oh leave. <laughs> yeah. Fair and dear God. Yes. Um, so I went back. So um, I think, that's when I moved to like Japan. I just got, I was like, where can I go? You know, what's a place where I could find a job very easily. And my friend was like, Oh, I was an English teacher in Japan. And I'm like, great. Sounds awesome. Cause I was on my way to be an actuarial science scientist, like a Mm -hmm. statistician. But, um, yeah, that didn't work out. How long were you in Japan? Uh, (laughs) a long time. Most of my, most of my life. Um, so if we go from that, I'm the same age as you, then, yeah. then you can kind of tell when, when I say I kind of left America for sure. good when I was 17, then we can kind of say the majority of my life was spent in Japan. Did you acclimate to the Japanese culture? Is it something that you kind of, was it a way of life that you just found easy or just, uh, I guess at least must have, if you stay there as long as you did, uh, that it just worked for you on some level? Don't think so. I'm very, really? I'm a very potable plant. You know, I'm, I'm very easily uprooted and planted again. So it wasn't a specific conscious choice for Japan. I had lived in Europe for five years total. I had been all around Europe. I think had I thought more about it, I probably said, oh, I'll move back to Italy or something like that. But I remember choosing a country that seemed to me to be the antithesis of the United States. I was really fed up with the United States, fed up with, you know, working for this toxic environment 
in New York City and being like beaten down and um, being shot at, you know, and everybody see it's always seemed like there was more guns everywhere I went. So I just wanted to get out of the country. And I guess it was escapism, you know, but uh you know, I was very happy in Japan and I uh, had a fantastic job and I was a teacher. Uh, I taught uh, English and language arts mm-hmm. at private school. And then I taught for the government with a program they have, uh, an exchange program with Iowa teachers. So I was hired as um, like just an average teacher who taught uh, English as a foreign language. My husband was, a, that's where I met my husband at the time. He was uh, what yeah. was called like a jet teacher where they have like a uh, teaching assistants. <laughs> I always make that decision because I'm like, oh, I was a real teacher. I had, you know, I was licensed and I had my own class. And uh, <laughs> it's such a random description and distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we met as teachers in Japan. And I just uh, stayed there. You know, I had a lot of friends and I, I, once I finally learned the the alphabets, <laughs> I yeah. was I was it was very easy to to learn and to live there. We were paid fa- fair wages, very fair wages, nationalized health insurance. I never had to worry about anything in that case because I was already paying that in my taxes, um, you know, state taxes, I guess. And it's a, uh, you know, it's just the life is better outside of the United States. It's not a thought or a statement that is easily indefensible. Is easily indefensible. Do you not understand yeah. what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it, it no, truly, absolutely. Truly, is life is better outside of the United States? For yeah, I, yeah, I don't <laughs> doubt that. Once, I mean, I mean, even previous to this, but certainly in light of it, and as the fucking seconds tick by, I in no way doubt that one bit. Did you have any hesitancy to date an American in light of some of your the reasons you were there in the first place? Oh no, not at all. I was okay. um I, I'm not really kind of you know, I I love a person I fall in love with or I'm attracted sure. to. So there was never any kind of uh meter or um kind of uh requirement that, you know, um of of a person I dated. There was nothing like that wouldn't give me a hang up, I guess. There's nothing yeah, gotcha. out there. And I'm trying to think of something that would be a hang up that I had that I would be like, oh, I'm not going to date them. But yeah. I don't think, I, I never, you know, that was not the case. So it was a surprise to be sure. Uh, Les was probably the first, well, the first ever kind of American that I had ever dated. And now I'm trying to think. I think I had I was having an affair one time with an American, a younger American, but that was really icky. It was just really yeah. bad. But that was the I think that was the only other American that I kind of dated. The only, uh, yeah, for a long time. That's interesting. So many Germans and French and uh, North African maybe, and um, you know Asian men and just um, you know and Asian women. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like there was no real requirement so like no 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 firsts there <laughs> no and that's fair enough I, yeah part of my curiosity was just that you know your your american experience and the things that in, at least partially drove you out of america were things that individually let alone collectively are that to, to put it lightly is that's a lot to process and a lot to take and those are it traumatic was, experiences well yeah my experience and how i was shaped maybe in the united states whether it was you know uh, shooting or uh, assault um, or any of the things that I experienced I think those were very minor in what I saw as a sickness kind of in the United States um, just not being a place where you could live um, we come back to the United States and we've been here now three years I guess and already we have medical debt medical debt for nothing else other than you know 
normal visits to the doctor or normal visits to the dentist. Um, And it's a big warning sign. I think people should understand that even if we move immediately to get nationalized health care, that's not something you're going to see within, it's probably going to take 10 years. But now I can say almost assuredly that you're not going to have nationalized health insurance in the United States for 20, 30, 50 years. So I have to think like about my future. What if, what what if someone has cancer or what if there's something down the line and, um, and I'm very easily, easily uprooted. So my, my thoughts are looking to the future. Like, where do I want to be in 10 years? And is it America? Why does it have to be here? No, it doesn't at all. No. Yeah. I asked you this beforehand. And so I want to ask it again. So about a year ago, probably. Yeah. Yeah. We were, I hadn't encountered you or or spoken to you at all in a uh, Twitch stream or knew of your existence i suppose previous to that but you mentioned and as it's before because i want to be sure because it's yeah. such a what a sentence but you had said that you thought that at least partially yeah the song yellow cold plays yellow yeah was written about you yes uh please continue okay so that's a lie um <laughs> there were i think at the time there were so i was telling people like everything like i am the most important figure in my own narrative absolutely sure you know and i i spend my days like helping others and advocating you know 30 little beings in my sphere you know and listening to them talk and so whenever i'm out of my workplace and out of the education like privately i kind of always try to oh you know i was i'm an apprentice candleship maker and i was a member (laughs) of a spanish circus and those are all true those are all true. But um, okay, well, the yeah, thing about the Coldplay, the Yellow Song, is here's how it came about. I heard the okay. song, and I was just like, when I first heard the song, I had just gotten out of a relationship with a filmmaker. And um, they had they had, had um, and there were, they were in the sphere of, like, young writers in Europe and, and uh, musicians. And they had um, created a short film that was about me, and it was... I swear to you, there were parts <laughs> of the song where I'm like, oh, my God, did I date Coldplay? You know, like when I reheard it <laughs> yeah. again, I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm just thinking, you know, that somehow this filmmaker had a hand in developing this song with Chris Martin. <laughs> so for like a split second in my mind, for about 30 seconds when I was really thinking about that song, I really contemplated the hey this could be about me but no yeah. when i when i was telling that to chat absolutely not you know i was telling <laughs> i was telling a lie so um that sticks with you i'll tell you that much because <laughs> i remembered and i was like i i mean i gotta ask in some capacity but every other but cool. story every other story i've told on that is true like i did interview radiohead and i did actually accidentally because i was the videographer i i rolled through the club with my my blouse open and i had no <laughs> bra on so oh. I was interviewing, uh, was it Tom York? And, yeah. yeah. Well, so he, the Mike, we were both DJs in a radio station and the guy was interviewing him and I was just the camera person, you know, mm. but I had this really cool like silk blouse on, brown blouse and I wasn't, you know, wearing, it was cold, it was Toronto and, and um, yeah, my blouse just popped open and I'm walking through a cl- crowd with, you know, the camera to shoot some uh, of the music for the show that we were producing. And uh, I get out to take the gear to the car and my shirt was just wide open. And oh, no. I was like, ah, oh. and I guarantee that's why people were looking at me really strangely in the club. <laughs> and no one told me, no one told me. I was there for and about she's 10 She's just so minutes. confident. She's just so, is that retro? What's she doing? Is it tape Not now? even batting oh, an eye, no, she's just filming the coverage. Yeah. That one is true. <laughs> 
Yeah, that sticks with you. Well, I mean, you opened that box. So you said apprentice candle maker, but also, was it Spanish? Spanish? Yeah. Yes, please yeah. continue. Okay, so first it was Circus Rigolini, and then, which is actually from Rigoline, which was our chocolate sponsor. It was a chocolate okay. bar that sponsored this circus. And I was at school in Germany. I was studying statistics and Germanistic, Germanistic. And um, I, needed, I needed a job because I was living there on my own. You know, I had to... Um, you know, buy food and, and, and stuff. And so I got a job working for the circus and I learned everything a circus performer can do. So anything you see performed on old videos or YouTube videos of, of a circus, I could do that at the time. You know, I can, wow. I can vault onto a, a galloping horse at the time. I don't think I could do yeah. it anymore. I'm still a proficient juggler, but like a verticalsa, the, the rope that you climb and you do acrobatics in the air. How do you say that in yeah. English? Oh, God, don't even ask me. I know what you're talking about, yeah. but in terms of... It's the velvety rope that you... Yeah, yes. And you put your hand in the loop. So I've done that. It's not very difficult. So you can train close to the ground with an, an alternate loop, but the rope is easy to climb because there's a way they teach you how to climb it. But like... What, what else did they teach us there? Lots of juggling and horse acrobatics and the, the vertical side, which is the rope that you climb. And so I did that for about six months and they had all these performances and like the chant, the current chancellor's something minister would come and watch us. And then we had like children's day camps where we teach them all this stuff. And so, <laughs> yeah, that's how I, that's how I uh, helped to fund my, uh, my lifestyle as I studied in uh, school and graduate school. How long were you part of the circus? How long did it take you to learn those things? No, you just were hired, you know, and, and you just picked it up. So Fair enough. there would be people there. I remember just in our free time, we would get in uh, circles and just practice, practice, practice. Like, you know, passing if you're a juggler or using um, flaming things like flaming uh, coils, like um, flaming uh, the bowling pins or um oh, okay or the the flaming balls how do you say it yeah you, the, the the balls that are on fire those yeah yeah but yeah yeah but yeah you're just yeah. i mean so you learn yeah, juggling flaming balls so, yeah. yeah that's we didn't there was no electricity where we were we we're on this little island in the river where the circus had set up and so we lived for six months like you know in the trailers and then the little um tents that we had built up for uh employees and and uh performers and stuff and that's that's the weird way that i <laughs> That is Crazy. utterly fascinating. I don't know. I find things. I was just reading uh, an alumni newsletter from from someone in high school, and all these people were doing amazing things. They were like chief directions officer of you know uh, AIM, the leading platform, and um, you know. And I can't even wrap my my head about that type of work. I don't. Yeah. Um. I'm I'm not that successful. Like these. People seem to be very established and have their lives together, but uh, I was in a Spanish circus, so it's a trade-off. I yeah, give me Spanish circus hundred <laughs> yeah, times out of a hundred for any kind of like mind-numbing tech explanation that again my brain certainly can't process. I, there were just a collection of words to me, but they don't necessarily mean yeah, anything. They had an elephant and giraffe and all these animals and all these ponies and stuff, and I remember that all the ponies and horses got loose and they kind of went stampeding through the the circus. This was during the day, um, and uh, I remember one of the little kids uh, trying to stop the stampeding like fifteen horses just by stretching out their arms, and I was like, ah. Oh. But they calmed down and they trotted back. So, but they used to take the the handlers used to take the elephant out into this grassland that was on this island, and um, and uh, it was it was kind of an an odd sight to see, you know, just an elephant in the middle of Germany, kind of grazing and walking around on this 
contained environment in the middle of a river. And- it's like drinking Sprite thinking it's water. It's like, I like this, but my brain wasn't but, prepared yeah, for it. Yeah, it's a weird image. And I'm not sure I'm okay, you know, with, with animals and circuses and things like that. And, um, they no, were kind uh, They were kind to them, but it's not a, an environment for any animal, obviously. And this, certainly. Like, the bracket, more... this was a different time, but even then, it wasn't. Yeah, that's a lot to reconcile, yeah. to say yeah. the least. Can you just say just a couple other jobs you had? Because I'm just out of pure curiosity. Candlestick maker, apprentice candlestick maker, yeah. I know you're saying. Yeah, apprentice candlestick maker. And let's see. So I worked for a large German bank in New York City. Okay. Um, and at the time I worked as a, uh, an analyst, kind of like a researcher, let's see. And then I worked, uh, when I first got to New York, before I found that job, I worked, um, in a place called Pearl Paints, which is where all the artists used to get their supplies in New York city. Um, it was a pretty big magnet. So if you were an artist, struggling artist living in New York city, you know, you came, but I was only there for a while, but that's where the store they came in. And that's where I started out when I was in New York before I left again to go to Asia. But let me try and remember. I've done a lot of translating work. So when the when the tsunami happened in 311, 2011, so I was a translator for someone going up from a large American newspaper. Um, and they were a photojournalist for a, a large American newspaper. And they needed a translator and a driver. Um, and this is about a, a week after 311. So that's our, the tsunami nuclear disaster in, and the earthquake in Japan. And so we drove up there for two weeks um, and uh, they took a lot of pictures and I translated it and they talked to a lot of people. And then of course we were there, um, you know, helping with the recovery efforts because one of the things when you're freelance, I guess um, he was trying, he would try to kind of barter his way into uh, interviews. So this was, right like there were news agencies that were there like cbs or abc or cnn msnbc or something fox i guess were there but after about a a week or two they left and still was stuff was still going on so they needed a translator but at the same time we would work during the days to like um remove debris from homes or just like separate things like try to find you would set up big buckets of like photographs that you would find or if you found jewelry you'd put it in this bucket and they would line all those buckets on on what was a street um but you i we saw a lot of stuff that was not really um that you're not prepared for and um and of course like there's there's the panic and the kind of very real ptsd so every time um a tsunami alarm would go off we would be like okay, is this another tsunami? And, um, like you, nothing is open because there are ships in the middle of the road and there's no buildings. So you, uh, we would sleep in the car or we slept in like a city hall for a couple of days, um, with the other reporters and translators. And, um, and then we'd go interview during the day, the SDF or, um, the Japanese self-defense forces that were part of the coordinated effort to, um, to dig things and, you know, dig things out. And, uh, so that was a weird month. That was a very, I, I had lived there already. So I'd experienced the earthquake and the, and that was, a, imagine a huge earthquake, like massive. Um, and then imagine having massive, like 40 massive earthquakes a day. Um, because it, the first initial earthquake was like a nine, four like the epicenter and God, um, God. so and the tsunami that resulted from that just wiped everything out f- 
for the first depending on how far inland it got so everything mm -hmm. is just flattened there's nothing there anymore and um and the loss of life and just the absolute kind of destruction um and just little elements of things that follow with that just kind of apocalypse like things that you would see in a movie that you wouldn't believe or the smells that were there that you knew what the smells were or the um the way the way they rescued people who were trapped in cars who were alive is very different how they they remove the the bodies from cars you know that where people had perished and yeah. you could see the difference you know so um and then we went to this guy the driver had a friend from the area and the friend had asked him to check on his neighborhood so when we went to that neighborhood um like the roads weren't cleared at all and it had burned down like it had been a wall of kind of fire that had spread through this small village and his house was still standing it was outside the line you know of destruction like by wow. three blocks so it was definitely everything was twisted smoking the strange smells and he was a huge ship and then the sdf had cleared off you know some roads and used bulldozers to clear open the roads to start recovery efforts but uh but that destruction was clearly very marked here's where the tsunami and the fires ended and the rest is just kind of destroyed by the, the initial earthquake quake and then mm -hmm. there was the nuclear disaster so um there were thousands and thousands of people who were earthquake and nuclear disaster refugees um who would come into different prefectures to live um and it was a real kind of uh it was just terrible for a terrible time yeah you know, I, I can't imagine it's unfathomable. I mean, it's something that your your brain can't process what your eyes are seeing and vice versa. I think, but I think Americans do go through it. I mean, there's hurricanes and, uh, you know, um, twisters, uh, tornadoes and, um, and uh, how do you say, um, floods sure. that um, equally hugely impact smaller communities and large communities in America. But the country is so big country is so big and we're so spread out it's like a diaspora you know we're spread across so much land and um, we don't really recognize that uh, this is happening in our country or something has happened yeah. we don't uh, recognize the the devastation in Puerto Rico because most of us don't have ties to Puerto Rico and we never go there sure. but that's America and you've got to know that they don't have water they still don't have water the water yeah. is unpotable they cannot you know drink it and uh Boy, it's just very frustrating. Again, with the ennui, the I don't know. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of ennui to be had in so many different facets. I mean, um, I don't know how to put it in any sort of way that that is in any way in any way intellectualized, but it's just it's a mindfuck. That's all I can say. There is so much to process, and it's so difficult, and it just feels like you, there is so little control. I mean, if that was my parting word here, it would be just to constantly bring up the, you know, the dichotomy of, of rich lives, rich privileged white lives in America to those of us who are poor, who are not, you know, privileged, who are black or brown. Um, like, it's really us against them. And that's how this should be framed. And yes. all these articles coming out about how the tenor of this uh, kind of... Um, uh, Black Lives Matter spring and all cops are, are bastard spring, you know, that, that we're having is, is another spark on the revolution that will inevitably come to the United States. There has to be a reckoning like, 
like other countries have seen, you know, a larger upheaval. And we had that in the 60s. We had a small spark in the 60s and maybe larger um, with uh, in, in the 80s with the AIDS awareness and the uh, LGBTQ community. And, um, you know, we thought we had civil rights and, and feminism in the 60s. We were absolutely wrong about that. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I think this is another spark. But when's the fire going to start? And I think that's a message that that I would w want to spread is that uh, we still have to fight. We still, uh, that sounds so pedantic though, doesn't it? But I completely agree. I, I completely agree. So thank you for coming on. I, I love this and I, I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you all for listening. Please stay safe, be kind, please wear a mask and just know it's okay to not be okay right now. There's no nailing this. Just do the best you can. And thank you again. Bye. Just bye.